Well, it's a pleasure to welcome our next guests to the program. They are two of members of a team of four that wrote a piece for theconversation.com, one of our favorite go-to websites, Beyond Long-Term Care, the benefits of seniors' communities that evolve on their own. This is where Norks come in. The team members that we're delighted to have with us are Drs. Catherine Donnelly and Vince DePaul. Both are professors in the School of Rehabilitation Therapy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Catherine and Vince, good morning to you both and welcome. Thank you very much for having us. We're delighted to be yeah. there. Well, it's good to have you yeah. with us, indeed. And uh, I, Norks, I was fooling around with it a few minutes ago because I, too, went to university in the 60s, and we had, we had narcs in those days. Okay. <laughs> uh, n- now, now in, in, in the 2020s, we have something called Norks, Naturally mm-hmm. Occurring Retirement Communities. Vince, uh, flesh this out for us. What is a naturally occurring retirement community, please? So it, it's really, as it described, it's natural. It's something that happens, um, uh, it evolves on its own. So this is, it could be a neighborhood where um, at one point there was lots of families, but the, the, the people have grown up, children have moved away, and now it's the majority older adults, people over 55 or over 65 or older than that. Um, or it could be... Um, say an apartment building in um, a downtown that people that is close to the grocery store and amenities, so the um, people have moved to that. So it's a place that isn't planned. It's not an institution like a retirement home. Right. It's just a a, a neighborhood or a, a community that that um, has a majority or a high proportion of older adults in it. Interesting, Catherine. You you're uh, fresh off the heels of the summer survey in Ontario, the home care survey. Then I'd like to hear yeah. some comments on because, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, well, the one thing that the pandemic has uh, taught us all is to have a, a longer, more lingering look at the sorts of care we're receiving at all levels and at all ages. And one of the things, of course, that we've seen tragically is, is a large number of fatalities in long care homes right across the country. And, and so, uh, and back to the study in Ontario, because there might be some confusion because of the degree of attention that's been paid to uh, long care residences, long-term facilities in the past few months, that, that the Priorities, uh, I think some people, especially younger people, may not understand that the majority of Canadians actually don't live in long-term care facilities. They live in their own places, and they're quite happy to stay there. Thank you very much. Tell us more about your findings. Yes, certainly. And so, you know, research from many, many studies, including the the most recent survey from Home Care, show that, you know, really the vast majority, 93, 94% of people are living independently in their own homes. And, Mm -hmm. And we can't forget that. And that's resoundingly where people want to stay. And the results of that survey show that people do not plan to to move to long term care. That's not in their vision of their own retirement. 
Interesting. And by the way, just as an anecdotal question on the matter of of, uh, long-term care, which typically would cost more than staying in your own home, which presumably you've at Mm. least paid off over time. Uh, So in terms of planning, do people, in uh, when they they line up their long-term horizon financial planning, Catherine, do they include some kind of uh, funds for the possibility of long-term care? Well, it's a good question you raise in terms of, you know, how long-term care is paid for. Yeah. So most of the, most of the time in, in across Canada, there's ma- major subsidies for long-term care, but the governments we know pay about $140, $150 per day per person. So, you know, it's, it's a huge burden on our, our system in Canada as a whole. In terms of us as individuals, because we live in Canada, we often don't think of paying for care at home. And so oftentimes it's not part of our, our financial planning. And we know that long-term care is subsidized, but I think I want to point out that retirement homes aren't. Mm-hmm. And so retirement homes are extremely costly. Um, they're often, you know, quite fancy. And, and they can be up to five, $6,000, if you can believe it, a month for yes, the high-end ones. Mm-hmm. My my mom uh, was in a long-term care facility, not far from where you are. She was in Peterborough, uh, mm-hmm. and she had she she was well enough off that she was financially independent. Not wealthy, but financially independent. And my brother and I set up a nice care home for her, and it was about it was about four thousand, just over four thousand dollars a month, and it was lovely. And she went mm-hmm. there, and she lasted about three months, and she moved to another place because it was too fancy. And that was it wasn't the it wasn't the money, Vince. It was just (laughs) too darn fancy. It was a little too little too uptown for her tastes. Uh, And and we're and we all all we wanted to do was, Mom, for goodness sake, enjoy yourself. You've certainly earned it. It was just a little too fancy. And and so off she went off to another place. It was okay, but not as nice as the first place. But then again, this these are the children of the depression we're talking about. So their values are quite different from ours. Absolutely, and they, um, and and we've found that working with older adults as well. They, they, uh, we think about planning, and people are thrifty in in their wants, and and sometimes these 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 uh, environments are are structured like cruise ships, and and the 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 things that go on, and the the, the uh, everything is planned for them, and um, and that's actually something that we've found in our work that. It, one of the most important things is the is um, autonomy, and the older adults um, want to have a say in not only where they live, but what what happens in their day. Sure, and 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 to direct things um, um, for themselves and choose um, who they want to make relationships with, and um, and so it's. I mean, there is always a place for these these more structured and institution type. Um, uh, places and it's they've done well for families and done well for some of the older adults but uh, I think we just have to think beyond them. Catherine, uh, in terms of funding, uh, when these, uh, it's not spontaneous, but they feel more spontaneous, these uh, uh, naturally occurring uh, retirement communities, these norks, when people get together and realize they have common interests and are able to pool their resources uh, to improve their quality of life for everyone involved, do government, does government funding become involved to any degree in situations like that? 
Well, it's a good question because here in Canada, there's almost no ex- examples of that. Um, but in the States, we do, we do see that. So there's something called NORCs, which we've been talking about. But there's a subset of NORCs called NORCs with social support programs. And I think that's what you're alluding to okay. here. Mm-hmm. So some just are naturally occurring and, and people don't even know they're living in a NORC, for example. You know, I, I went online and, and looked up NORC, some, some areas in Victoria, for instance. And there's a number of what we would classify as NORCs in, 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 in Victoria. Victoria, but okay. those people probably don't know they're living there unless they come together and start to plan and bring programming into their NORC, for instance. So NORCs with social support programs, that's where you start to see government funds and supports um, from sort of provincial agencies or, or, or regional support services that coalesce in these regions. But in Canada, we don't do a good job of leveraging that. So we haven't systematically identified where NORCs are in each community, nor have we try to develop programming, for example, in there. So it often takes one or two people to get the ball rolling in their NORC. And so I know you'll be talking to Helen Cooper shortly, but she's going to be talking about Oasis and, and how older adults in that one NORC came together. Um, but currently, no, in, in Canada, there's very limited funding. Um, and Helen will be talking about one example of that. We're talking seniors living options right now with our guests from Queen's University, Drs. Catherine Donnelly and Vince DePaul from the School of Rehabilitation Therapy at Queen's. And our panel is expanded by one. It's a pleasure to welcome from the Oasis Senior Supportive Living Program in Kingston, Ontario, the president of their board of directors and former mayor of Kingston. In Ontario, Helen Cooper has joined us as well from the Queen City. Good morning, Helen. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. We were talking with uh, Catherine and Vince a few minutes ago about Norks naturally occurring retirement communities. After Catherine uh, apprised us of the results of the Ontario Seniors uh, Living Survey this summer, in which over ninety-three percent of people surveyed said, "Yeah, I'd rather stay in my own home, please." And virtually no one plans for long-term care as part of the of the future housing uh, course they they chart for themselves. It becomes necessary in some cases, of course, Helen, but the vast majority of Canadian seniors, and this can easily be extrapolated across the country, would prefer to stay home, thank you very much, or at least in an environment surrounded by like-minded people. That's right. And in an environment where they have uh, control over their own lives and are able to make decisions about day-to-day activities. And Vince, that's what you were talking about earlier, the, f- the fact that uh, individuals, uh, older people, like, uh, they've, they've been in charge of themselves in their lives for a long time. They like being in charge. They don't like being pushed around. And so that's a key ingredient in these naturally occurring retirement communities. No matter how, uh, how well organized they may appear to be, they, there's some or- organic element to it all isn't there yeah absolutely and um i think we forget the 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 roles that people played in their lives and continue to play and and the strengths and the capacities they have and 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 desires so um i think we just have to remember that when we're when we're um thinking of these these solutions absolutely catherine whose idea was oasis in the first place Oh, that's going back about 11 years now yeah, to yeah. A, a woman called Christine McMillan, and who was in her late 80s at the time. And I and she got together with a, with a group of older adults who were living in this one apartment building in Kingston. And, and together they planned the concept of Oasis. 
And so it be, it's, a, it's a volunteer organization, very organic in, in, in its, its inception. And how does it run, Helen? You're the chairman of the board of directors now. Yeah. And, and this facility is now expanding and the model is being copied elsewhere in the province and perhaps even elsewhere in the country eventually. So how, how does it work? Well, first of all, there's the volunteer board of seven directors. We're all living in the community ourselves, not in the apartment building in which Oasis is situated. Okay. Uh, and we have uh, broad community experience as a group, uh, so we can assist the members of Oasis. Uh, people who move to the apartment building, and they're not, um, it's a private landlord who makes decisions about the tenancies. Uh, it's not all uh, older people living in the building, but it's a majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, um, uh, we uh, convene as a board uh, involving them in decision-making about what programming will take place. And people can choose or not choose to participate. Sure. There are costs. Um, we don't, uh, the money doesn't, it, it comes from the provincial government, but does not flow directly to us. It flows through a local hospital called Providence Care, uh, which provides uh, financial management. We don't have to keep books, for instance, and or audits. And it um, also hires a program coordinator. Uh, and uh, that's the biggest expense of Oasis, is a person who I call the glue that keeps it all together. Uh, she's there a regular working week. Uh, she uh, has an office adjacent to a lounge. Uh, she can uh, offer programming activities during the day in the lounge mm-hmm. uh, or just morning coffee. She's also there to talk to members individually when they have problems And as I always point out, um, not only are the members beneficiaries of this, but their families are, particularly the families who don't live in Kingston. Sure, yeah. They know, um, and I heard you speak about your own mother, Mm -hmm. they know that there is somebody there who is watching out for their mom. Indeed. Or their dad. Uh, It is mostly moms, not (laughs) women still do. We've got a number of people well into their 90s now who are living quite ably in this location and who would otherwise, their only alternative would have been long-term care. Helen, does the cost of that uh, program coordinator, that critically important person, to the well-being of all involved, are her wages covered by the rents that the no, the residents no. pay? So they, there would be an extra cost on top of there, that for there her. There is an extra cost, which is provincial funded. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, I I would suggest it's a huge bargain for the province. I think Catherine's already told you what it costs to run long-term care, just operating costs per day. Yes, I've done an estimate that uh, per member. Uh, we cost less than $10 per member per day, uh, which is quite a bit less than the 150 or whatever dollars a day of long-term care. Mm-hmm. Catherine, a question, uh, it's a kind of a philosophical question for you. As, as again, we become uh, more educated as a country on the nature of long-term care, and some of it hasn't been exactly up to snuff, and you know what I mean, uh, mm-hmm. to the point where we've had to call in the army for crying out loud, uh, and we've seen some pretty, pretty horrible management uh, uh, strategies 
strategies at play to the point where there are now conversations in some corners of this country about some of these residences or facilities being taken over by governments, a, a kind of a nationalization program. Are you hearing this conversation and what do you make of it? We're definitely hearing that loud and clear here in Ontario. And, you know, I think we, we still need more data. You know, I think that's the, the challenge right now. We've known about these issues for many years leading up to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had recommendations aligning very much with what we're seeing. So I, I do think we need more data about the private versus public spheres before I can really make a, a comment on that, actually. Okay, but you, you do, you, there is a, a, almost an urgency to the conversation that you're, you're hearing uh, fairly clearly, correct? Most definitely. And, you know, again, it's pointing uh, the shadow or the, the light, I should say, on, on supporting people who are already in their homes. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, how do we do that? How do we think differently um, about supporting people? And I just want to make a, a little nod to Oasis. We've actually looked at the impact of Oasis on health utilization and long-term care. And we found in our, our research that people who were in Oasis versus a non-Oasis building were able to stay in their home for a year longer, mm. on, which is quite substantial, sure. not just cost savings, but quality of life and what people want. Interesting stuff. Helen Cooper, if people listening to us right now here in Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island uh, are kind of uh, intrigued by this notion of a, a NORC, an Oasis project, where can they go online to find out about you and what you're up to and the successes you're enjoying? All right. The website is operated by Catherine and Vince, uh, and it's uh, it, Oasis is not an unusual name. It applies to many things. Sure. So what you have, to, what people have to look for is uh, Oasis Aging in Place, uh, Kingston, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And if they type that in, they'll they'll get the right website. Oasis Aging in Place.com is the actual title. Helen Cooper, uh, uh, Vince DePaul, and Catherine Donnelly, thank you all very much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to have spoken with you. I really like the article, Catherine and Vince. Keep, the, keep it up, and I'd love the opportunity to talk about this going forward, particularly, Catherine, as more data becomes available to you and we can actually have that conversation about the pros and cons of moving in that direction. Most definitely. Thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure. Yes. It's our Thank pleasure. Thank you very much. Ben. You're welcome, okay. Vince. Thank you for joining us. And Helen Cooper, a pleasure to meet you as well. Keep up the good work at Oasis. Okay, thanks very much. Time for us to pay attention at the moment to a new free mobile app that helps refugees and immigrants in British Columbia find information and services to plan their settlement journey when they move here. It's a pleasure to welcome Patrick Esty. Mr. Esty is the Chief Development Officer with an outfit called Peace Geeks, and they are responsible for the Arrival Advisor app. Patrick Esty, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, I barely see anything this morning around town, but <laughs> I, I think we'll make it all here. It's just a little, a little, uh, a little uh, hazy around town this morning. Patrick, tell us about Peace Geeks before we move into this new app. And it sounds wonderful. And I have a friend who is not originally from Vancouver whom I told about this uh, just last night, and uh, she got quite excited about it. Thought it was a great idea. But tell us about Peace Geeks, your organization, first, please. Sure. Yeah. So we're we're Peace Geeks. We're a Vancouver-based nonprofit organization. Uh, we build digital tools to empower communities in the pursuit of peace. Um, essentially, what that means is 
we really help uh, those through through technology. So Arrival Advisor is our free mobile app that's available for download at the um, Apple and Google Play Store. Okay, and it was it, and it was started from. Um, a project that we initiated called Services Advisor, um, which helped um, those who were um, displaced uh, in areas like Turkey and Syria, and it was helping them to find uh, services as they were um, displaced on their journey. So now we've taken that learning and we've created this app that um, allows individuals, newcomers, refugees, to um, British Columbia to find services to help them settle effectively and just um, get a head start on their uh, on, on on their settlement journey. That's a great idea, Patrick. Now back to Peace Geeks for a second, because as I was doing a little homework trying to find out more about you, I found, of course, peacegeeks.org and mm-hmm. a, a, a paragraph in there that says we've rebranded. So initially you started out uh, under the name Pathways and then changed to Peace Geeks. Was the uh, service advisor, uh, the uh, app that you developed, that you described already, was that developed when you were still Pathways, or had you already become Peace Geeks? So Peace Geeks has always been Peace Geeks since 2011. We were founded in 2011. Pathways was the initial um, name of the Arrival Advisor app. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. So initially, um, the Arrival Advisor app in its, um, you know, kind of first stages was called Pathways. Um, but Peace Geeks, we've been around since 2011. Uh, we have an office here in Vancouver, and we also have an office in Amman, Jordan as well. I see. Okay. All right. So an international organization. Uh, yeah. the, now, let's talk a little bit. Of, just do some some numbers for us this morning, Patrick. I know it's early, but we are a, a nation. And, and if anything, uh, COVID-19 has taught us over the last six months, Patrick, it's to look in our midst and realize how much of our economy and our national well-being is dependent on guest workers and people mm-hmm. from other parts of the world who come to support our economy. So uh, if anything, it's been a good lesson for Canadians who tend to take a lot of this stuff for granted. But talk to us a little bit about intake numbers on a national basis. Yeah, so um, really we're seeing that um, about one-third of individuals that are arriving here in British Columbia, that they um, aren't aware of the services that are, that, that, that are available to them. So what's great about our um, app is that they can um, access services as soon as they arrive. They can even download the app before, before they, they get here. Yeah. 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 Before they arrive in, um, in Canada, we've even found it useful for people that are just um, moving from province to province as well. Um, and, you know, like you were talking about with COVID-19, uh, the app is even more important now because many of the services have had to close their doors to Good the point. public. Yep. So can you imagine being someone who's just, um, you know, who's just immigrated to British Columbia? And, you know, there are still individuals that are coming on a daily basis, as you said, um, that um, really need to to get started and they need to find out information about how to register their children for school. Sure, yeah. 
um, you know, how to, how to set up their uh, medical services plan, get a driver's license, all those types of things. And what's great is that it's all available in, in one app. Um, they can answer a short questionnaire that allows them to have uh, these services personalized to them. So you can enter certain questions like, um, you know, do you have children? Um, are you currently looking for work mm-hmm. that will um, really personalize um, their, 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 their services and really help them even access information or questions that they may not even know how to ask. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, in terms of intake numbers, the people uh, we had a, a guest on the on the show a few months ago. He was the director of the water planning department for Metro Vancouver, Patrick. And this is just an interesting number for you to know. Uh, mm-hmm. They uh, as part of he's he's responsible. His job is making sure there is always going to be an adequate water supply for the population of Metro Vancouver. And so mm-hmm. when and the going forward, they plan their new number is 35,000. 35,000 new people arrive in Metro Vancouver every year. And so mm-hmm. people, people who uh, organize and plan for the sustainability of our region need to know, sort of to extrapolate into the future, well, if 10 years from now, how many more new people are there going to be? Well, it used to be they planned on 30,000 people a year, Patrick. Now it's mm-hmm. up to 35,000 a year. So if anything, the app is even more timely as more and more people come to British Columbia to, to, uh, to find a better life. Well, and just think that one third of those thirty-five thousand, they've 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 done a, a, a recent survey that is saying that um, they're unaware of the services that are available. To I'll them. bet. Yep. And you know, uh, another key factor is language. That many of these newcomers um, come to Canada, and um, you know, they're speaking many different languages. So we're so we're actually really excited. Um, we launched. Um, arrival advisor um, back in uh, March 2019 but we're, we're we're now excited because we're expanding um, the uh, the application to include eight languages eight? so now okay. yeah so now um, newcomers and um, they can access the the application in eight languages and it's in English French Arabic, Chinese simplified and traditional, Korean, Punjabi, and Tagalog. All right, okay. New to British Columbia, the uh, Arrival Advisor app created by Peace Geeks is your trusted companion from your arrival in Canada to when you feel comfortably settled. Whether you need a job, want to learn English, or connect with your community, find all the information and services you need to get started in your new community. It's free, it's in your language, and it's personalized for you. This is, we're talking about the Arrival Advisor app from Peace Geeks, their chief developer. Development officer is Patrick Esty, and Patrick, uh, this is this is an idea that's been around for a while. You've got it all up to speed now with eight different languages. Uh, what sort of usage are you getting? Uh, lots of response so far. For sure, yeah, we're we're seeing about sixty three hundred downloads um, from individuals, and we're really um, excited to offer it now in in, in the eight languages right. that I mentioned. Um, so English, Arabic, French, um, Korean, 
Tagalog, Punjabi, Chinese simplified, traditional. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so along with that, we're going to be um, providing a series of demonstrations in these different languages here in Metro Vancouver. It's going to be happening over Zoom. Um, So we really encourage individuals that are interested in learning more about the app to go to arrivaladvisor.ca slash demo. Okay. Um, For the month uh, or for the whole month of September and beginning of October, we're going across the province um, and providing these, these training sessions and they're going to be available in, 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 in these different languages. So English, Mandarin, Arabic, French, Punjabi, Korean uh, and Tagalog. So we're really excited about that. And it's, you know, a a big initiative. We're working on this with our partner, AMSA, who's the Affiliation of Multicultural Societies and Service Agencies of BC. Okay, now Ron has a question about that. And I think Ron was interested in who's bankrolling all of this. Ron, good morning. And go ahead with your question to Patrick, please. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Good morning, Patrick. Um, No, I'm just wondering, um, who does the IT support? Yeah, so so we are um, Peace Geeks, and we are, uh, you know, small but mighty staff of uh, 10 individuals. Um, The majority of our funding with when it comes to Arrival Advisor, um, it we we actually in 2017, we were um, we placed in the top five of the Google.org impact. Oh, that's right. You won a contest and a whole whack of dough, didn't you? We yeah. did, yeah. We won yeah, uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. So um, that's really where we were able to um, to get um, that funding. Um, we also received some funding from um, our our uh, partners at um, the province of British Columbia, as well as the Leap Paco Impact Center, as well, um, and also through. Um, fundraising events and um, through through donors as well. And Ron, it's it's, it's, partly, yeah, yeah. it's partly my fault because I didn't mention as as an intro back a couple of years ago the Peace Geeks folk placed in the top five among nine hundred organizations in yeah, this in, in this in this Google contest, and they won seven hundred and fifty grand, and that was what allowed Patrick and his team to develop the uh, uh, Arrival Advisor app. Hey, sir. Um, uh, uh, Patrick, um, uh, that expression you just made, we're a small and mighty staff. I'm a gardener. Uh, we're a bunch <laughs> of 60-year-old guys. Uh, yeah. can, I, can I borrow that? <laughs> <laughs> Ron, thanks very much for your call. Lots of enthusiasm about this one, Patrick. People people see this as a positive. And, you know, we forget uh, uh, with all of the working from home conditions that we've all been living with for the past few months, it's sort of become, well, weirdly normal, if you know what I mean. But if you're just yeah. walking, if you're just arriving in Vancouver and you're trying to, you know, bang on a few office doors and get yourself established and all the offices are closed because everyone's working. Working from home. Oops! Now what? Ah, time yeah. time for the arrival advisor app, right? Definitely, yeah. And and you know, speaking of um, some of our our our, our funding um, projects, like arrival advisor, are, are funded through an annual um, event called Give It Up for Peace. It's an online fundraising event, so you can do it from home. It's going to take place for the month of November, and we're challenging people to support newcomers in BC during the pandemic by giving up one thing they enjoy on a regular basis for the whole month. Oh. So wh- whether it's your morning bagel, your net- your Netflix binges, um, you know, your online shopping, 
Uh, last year I gave up meat, so that was pretty interesting for me. Um, but yeah, we want people to go to give it up for peace, the, the number four dot org, and they can sign up. Um, it's, it's really fun. It's great to get, um, you know, offices that are now, um, having to be displaced by the pandemic. It's, it's a great way to connect everyone, um, through, through a really worthy cause. Okay, I'm just I'm just heading to giveitupforpeace.org. Uh, oh, there it is. Okay, so this is this is your fundraiser, and this is how you're going to continue uh, making services to newcomers available on an ongoing basis in Vancouver. Giveitupforpeace.org, and you can learn lots more about that at uh, at the website, by the way, which is arrivaladvisor.ca. Patrick Esty, to you and your tough, tiny team. Congratulations and much uh, continued success with the. Arrival Advisor app. Thanks for doing this with us this morning. Thank you so much. Arrivalapp.ca. Arrivalapp.ca. Check it out and learn more about how that works. And if you have someone new to Canada in your life, this is going to be a plus in theirs. There's a new Harris poll out taken uh, just a couple of months back uh, indicating companies with 100 or more employees saying they are the most likely to increase their employee count in the second half of this year. In other words, the larger the company, the, the more likely that company would be to be doing some hiring in the second half of this year. So who's doing the hiring and what sort of work is out there going wanting at the moment? Pleasure to welcome back Brent Paulington. Mr. Paulington is a frequent visitor to our show. Always happy to have Brent join us from Express Employment Professionals Vancouver office. Good morning, Brent. Good morning. So let's talk about uh, this Harris poll. Uh, no surprising uh, numbers out of this. Companies with 100 or more employees are more likely to be hiring than smaller companies. But I suppose the other side of that that uh, equation, Brent, is the not good news side. The smaller the business, the less likely any new hiring will be also is part of the findings, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're definitely seeing, uh, I mean, the small businesses want to hire, but I find a lot of the smaller businesses require their people to wear more hats and and expect their people to have a bigger impact. And just the hire has a a far greater uh, impact on the business and they have greater needs and and a great hire can have a huge impact and a bad hire can have an even, you know, greater adverse effect. I suppose, and the larger the company, the more likely they have been to avail themselves of some of these federal programs to at least keep the business afloat uh, during these trying times as well, Brent. Yeah, and I also think that the larger companies uh, have been able to grow to the size and scale that they have through, you know, great systems and processes. And a lot of small business owners, you know, start their companies because they're good at something and maybe not necessarily as uh you know, as strong on the true business side and, and the bigger companies have silos and, and places where people, this is your job, you know, start to finish. Whereas in the small businesses, you're, you know, you need your employees to do more and take on more responsibility. And if you lose one of those people, it becomes increasingly difficult to replace them because they may be doing a number of things that weren't necessarily in the job description. Um, so yeah, it creates a, creates a, a far greater challenge for the small business, uh, even to be able to, to, 
you know, to document and share with someone exactly what they're going to need to do outside of the regular kind of day-to-day responsibility. That's right, even describing all of the aspects of the job. So, Brent, who is doing the hiring now? Let's take a look at those companies that have uh, larger staff sizes and that are in a position to do some hiring. What sort of jobs are out there right now? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing right now actually a great trend uh, for us, especially, but we're seeing uh, like a, a demand across the board, small businesses and large businesses. What I find, though, is the smaller the company, the greater the expectation is on what the employee is going to deliver. Uh, and it becomes increasingly challenging to, you know, find, say, the office manager who also needs to have an accounting background, also be able to be customer facing, also be able to do this, also be able to do that. Sure. Whereas in the larger company, it's just here's what we need. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's not as if they, they don't have larger expectations, but again, the, 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 the need from the smaller businesses that people do more. And of course they don't necessarily have the same budget. So it really puts them at a disadvantage versus the large company that has access to greater capital, uh, also has larger uh, teams that are able to train, develop on board. Uh, just, it, it, it's definitely a disadvantage to the small business owner. Sure it is, yeah. Now, I think it's a pretty safe bet at this point still, Brent, that the hospitality and food service industries are are not doing much hiring. They're very, very uh, immersed in just trying to stay alive with the existing skeleton crews they have. So if it's not happening in food and hospitality, where are the jobs these days? Yeah, absolutely. Finding uh, a lot of people from those industries making transitions into roles where, uh, you know, they're working, uh, you know, a little bit more hands on. We're finding lots of of construction, manufacturing, production, landscaping, um, you know, those service type based industries. Obviously, the cleaning industry has Mm -hmm. had a great uptick right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I find uh, that's kind of the easier transition at this stage where where those companies have always looked for just good people who are willing to, you know, put in a, a good day's work. But, I mean, that re- requires the person to be willing to get their hands dirty and, and maybe do some, some harder work than they're used to, which, which isn't the easiest or even sometimes a, a possible transition for a lot of people. Well, it's interesting you would mention the cleaning business. We had the CEO of Advanced Cleaning on the program last week, and he was talking about he's got a couple of thousand employees and they, they specialize in cleaning office buildings, right? And I said, well, this is going to yep. be a, a sad story because, of course, all, nobody's working in office buildings or the skeleton crews. There's, there's no buildings to clean. And he said, wrong. Oh, not only do those buildings need to be kept clean, they need to be deep cleaned frequently. He said, if anything, the pandemic has escalated his business by a good 20 percent. And I thought exactly the opposite was going to be the case. But last time you and I talked, Brent, you talked, again, you've alluded to it already this morning in the conversation, people whose expectations of a, of a path in one career have had those expectations shaken up and in some cases almost removed by the pandemic. And so they are forced to, to pivot, as many, many of us are, out of necessity and looking at other possibilities and alternatives. You're talking to people, a lot of people, grown-ups, who are considering or in the middle of career changes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're seeing it, uh, not just the people in our local market, but applicants reaching out from all over the world saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a way to get my foot in the door in Canada and willing to do whatever it takes. But yeah, from the, 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 the person who's actually actively here, yeah, it's, it's been a huge change for a lot of people where, uh, 
you know, we've, we've had clients of ours that work in audio video companies that do large scale events where their company has been just absolutely decimated sure. by, yep. by the, uh, the mm-hmm. fallout from COVID. And yeah, a large number of employees have, have unfortunately had their careers change for them, or at least that the door was closed on whatever they've, they've gone to school for years or, or put, you know, five, 10, 15 years into. And yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a massive challenge, uh, especially because again, as we talked about those small businesses, they have major expectations and look to, you know, find people that could make an immediate impact and although some of these people have just amazing aptitude and would be able to be a huge contributor right. their immediate value that they would provide to the company uh, isn't necessarily there so it makes it hard for them and, and, and a big step backwards they need to take yeah uh, and I, I suppose and now we know that the serb benefit package for example expires at the end of september and a lot of people will roll over to what is hopefully a revamped and uh, improved uh, ui system but are you also expecting a new surge of uh, applicants of people looking for work as their benefits uh, expire uh, on the federal program a lot of these people are going to transition back into the workforce are you seeing that already brent uh, an uptick in numbers yeah yeah absolutely i mean i I absolutely hope that we see more people because it continues to be a challenge but yeah i think last week we uh was actually reading a, a posting from a colleague on mine on LinkedIn where they were advertising for an internship position. I don't even know if it was paid, but they had 769 applicants oh my. Uh, and ended up moving forward with eight. Uh, we recently ran a, a job posting for an office manager and within one week saw, I believe, over 80 applicants. Um, now the quality is, is a challenge at times. And, and again, we're getting applicants from a lot of people uh, that aren't in the local market. Uh, but yes, absolutely, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, to seeing a lot of people wanting to return to the workforce. And I think a lot of uh, companies are, are looking forward to that as well. So Brent, is there a website that you can recommend yours and, and others to our listeners this morning who might be looking for work, just casting around, looking for possibilities and a chance to maybe sit down with a smart person in the employment business to have that very important talk about, well, I, I, I don't think, I, I may need to to change careers where, where, where can they go online yeah. to find out more yeah a few things there one uh, obviously our site express employment uh, we're happy to take a look at any candidates that apply uh, i would suggest if someone's active in their search that they uh you know they do a quick search of any recruitment company out there um but that should maybe only be 25 percent of their search uh work bc is a fantastic resource we've made some really great relationships there they're uh, there to help people uh, polish their resumes, uh, look at skill development, uh, interview uh, tips and techniques. Mm-hmm. I haven't been doing that for a while, and it's all uh, at no cost. Uh, and they're a great resource. We they, they, they pass people over to us. We pass people to them. Uh, employers reach out to WorkBC looking for assistance finding people. So they're, they're fantastic. I highly recommend them. Indeed. Okay. Well, thanks for that recommendations. And I'll, I'll repeat your website, Express Employment Professionals. Brent Paulington owns the Vancouver Office of Express Employment and is a, a regular visitor to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show. Always a pleasure, Brent. Thanks for this today. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you again. This headline certainly caught our attention yesterday. Vancouver cancels construction project worth $460 million. The headline was in Western Aviation News, and the the cancelor was YVR. Here to talk about this monstrous construction cancellation is Brett Bala, the founder and publisher of Western Aviation News. Brett, good morning. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. This uh, this project, this is well underway. This is not something that was uh, scrubbed uh, in the blueprint stage. This is a, a project that's on the go and is suddenly cut. So describe the project because there's there's uh, there's there's a green element to it all that uh, it would surprise some, I think, Brett. Yeah, you know what? It was a very, very ambitious project. So this was launched in 2018. So that's when construction started. June of 2018, they broke the ground. And the most visible element, uh, when you show up at YVR now, whether you take the train or drive up, you'll see it. It's a giant parkade. It was a, it, the part of it was a parkade expansion. Mm-hmm. But the more interesting part that most people don't necessarily know about was a, a large geothermal uh, plant that was included. So under the parkade, there are these giant wells, these geothermal wells to bring up, you know, consistent temperature air from down in the ground Mm -hmm. and use that to heat and cool the terminal building without any, without producing any greenhouse gas emissions. Very ambitious project, uh, very forward looking, very green project. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, that's now been mothballed. Interesting. Now, this is uh, this is uh, uh, the timing. Of course, is is what causes one to be a little suspicious here, because of course the feds we know, Brett, are in the process of preparing some kind of what they see as a terrific opportunity to change just about everything, and they're going to put a green filter on just about anything they approve going forward. So here you have yep. and air, airports across Canada, and you you talked in in this article about Vancouver and Winnipeg and other Canadian airports really in tough shape for cash because they rely on passengers for their fees, their airport improvement fees. No passengers, no fees. So here's this fantastic green project in Vancouver that's so up the federal government's alley, it almost hurts to watch, Brett. And now they're canceling it. This would assume the feds can be pretty much shamed into picking up the tab for the balance given the green nature of the project in the first place. What do you think? Well, it's, you know what? That's actually a very good point. Um, uh, let's face it. Tamara Vrooman, who is the new president and CEO of, of, of uh, Vancouver International, has a lot of uh, not direct political experience, but a lot of experience in government. Sure. And so she would know how to, you know, make the levers work in her favor. Now, there's no indication at all that that's the case here. But in the back rooms, perhaps... You know, airports have been lobbying the federal government for help, not just on uh, operating, but also on capital projects. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of capital project, as you mentioned, that could fit the bill for the federal government looking for green projects. This would have been the biggest plant of its kind in Canada, or among the biggest. Sure, It would be a huge, prestigious project if the federal government were to come in and say, OK, let's forget the parkade. Whatever's built is built. Let's leave it there. But this green project goes ahead. That would be an intriguing uh, win for the federal government in a way to show support for aviation, which is crying out for help, and at the same time set green targets that it can meet. Interesting stuff. And let's, uh, very let, interesting thought. Yeah, let's pursue this this whole notion of assistance because we've got quite the, the full spectrum of the industry is basically cap in hand at Ottawa's front door these days, Brett, because not only do you have air, airports like Vancouver and Winnipeg and Moncton and pick one, but you've also got the air carriers, the airlines themselves in deep financial trouble, all of whom, all, all of those 
I, I don't want to say competing interests because they're all coming from the same sector, but they all want some government money. What do you foresee as, uh, well, receiving any of what their wish list includes these days? I, I, I hate to say it, but I think the airports have a stronger case uh, than the airlines for help because the, at least the land is owned by the public. And yeah. so the federal government can say, well, okay, we own the land, so we'll do X, Y, and Z to help you out. Um, for instance, for this year, they've forgiven ground lease payments uh, for the largest airports. Maybe they'll extend that for another five years. Uh, that would be one thing that could help. Uh, the airlines, uh, yeah, they're, they're desperate for help, but I, I you know, there's the issue of refunds and passenger refunds. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in March, the airlines canceled a lot of flights because of COVID, understandably. Um, and instead of refunding passenger money, they offered travel vouchers. That's right. And I think they're still paying a political price. The airlines are still paying a political price for that decision because every time something goes up on social media from, uh, you know, an airline president or an airline itself, dozens, hundreds of comments come back saying, well, you still have my money. Mm-hmm. And so bailing them out is a risky political decision for the government right now. It's really touchy. So the airports themselves are safer uh, political ground for them to stand on. Are there any airports in the country uh, that are in worse shape than others, or are they all in about the same pickle financially, Brett? They're they're all in they're all in a real pickle. Um, uh, they, they airports the, the biggest airports across the country. I looked at the twenty two biggest airports across the country, which includes Vancouver. Sure, um, they built up fifteen billion dollars in debt before the pandemic hit, and that debt was used to pay for terminals, runways. Uh, as you mentioned, they have to get their money from passengers on airport improvement fees. Sure, so they built up this debt to build facilities that are now way too large. For the current demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the revenues dry up, they have a hard time paying that debt back. And very few airports have escaped that. Uh, Victoria wasn't in bad financial situation last time I talked to them because they at least didn't have any debt. But all that does is it gives them a bit more breathing room. It doesn't mean they're doing well. Right. And of course, all of this debt was accumulated based on what seemed at the time uh, pretty, pretty safely too, based on a a predictable cash flow. YVR will do X X number of passengers. That's right. And we we, three percent more passengers every year. Exactly. So there was that growth. It was sort of built in. And so the debt to take on that kind of debt was it seemed I mean, sure, it was a big number, Brett, but it seemed relatively risk free. It seemed a great bet. Frankly, for the airports and for anyone buying that debt, it seemed like a great bet. Uh, No one saw, obviously, what we're living now. And so with this cancellation of the YVR uh, parkade expansion complete with geothermal heating package that you're quite right. I don't know how many people listening this morning were aware of that. We knew that because you can see the parkade. You're quite right. You go to the airport, you can see the construction. But I don't think very many of us knew that there was this whole geothermal plant going on that would basically take care of the needs of the, of the entire airport community. Uh, self, uh, self-sufficiency was what that was all about. I don't know that anyone... Uh, we're, we're too aware of that, but if that ca- program is cancelled, uh, does that that mean the geothermal project will go away or just be put on hold? What's your best guess? Uh, my best guess is, uh, you know what? This is this is a challenge. This is a very good question because Craig Richmond, the former CEO of Vancouver Airport, was the real push behind the greening. 
process. Now, it does still exist in the fabric of the airport, that, that push for green technology. Sure. You know, they're a West Coast operation, after all. Um, but, you know, how long will it be? It'll be years, at least, before we know the answer to that question, I think. Interesting. Um, because the conditions have to get better for them to, to take on, you know, what will be at least a couple hundred million more dollars to spend on, uh, on infrastructure. Interesting stuff. Brett, great story. Glad you were able to, to uh, flesh it out for us on the radio this morning. We'll keep a sharp watch on it, and if things change at all, we'll get you back on here and you can guide us through them, okay? All right, Sterling. Thank you. Appreciate that. Brett Bala is founder and publisher of Western Aviation News. That's it for us for this morning. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.